Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thief. Prisoner. Soldier, priest. Paul Cowley was a former soldier, prisoner, and now a priest. Recruiting ex-prisoners to work in Iceland. That you go in and you recruit people that are in prison who are due to be released to offer them, if I'm right, an opportunity to work for Iceland, giving them a second chance. Absolutely. That's it. Why do you do that? On one Sunday, my father came home late from work. A big argument. My mother had cooked for him. I was there. And my father went to backhand my mother in the front room. And I stood in the gap. And I, I got the belt that my, um, that my mother was going to get. And it was a big argument. And my father said, I want you out of the house. So in my arrogance and youth, I ran upstairs, grabbed a bag, threw some stuff in and slammed the door behind me. I slept in, in a shop sort of doorway. And then I got picked up by, by a gang, really. It was a, a guy late at night who kicked my foot. And, and we talked, what you do, and I told him what I was doing. And, and he sat with me and he said, look, we've got a, I'm in a squat. Why don't you come and stay in there? It's better than the streets. And that's where I got into thieving. And the magistrates this time, three of them on the bench, a guy in the middle, said, you, Cowley, are not listening to what we're trying to do. You, my son, are going to get a short, sharp shock. You're going to prison. Welcome to the Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This show centres around the question of who deserves a second chance, who has the power to grant it, and what it means. Our guests come from diverse backgrounds and experiences, including those who have received second chances and those who some might feel are undeserving. We'll also be looking at how a person's journey can lead them to a second chance. Growing up in Manchester with alcoholic parents, Paul Cowley's early life was filled with explosive arguments and aggression. His exposure to such a toxic environment led him to homelessness and crime, ultimately resulting in him being incarcerated at the young age of 17. After serving in the army, which failed to provide him with the direction and purpose he craved and the subsequent death of his parents, 
Paul's quest for meaning led him to an extraordinary encounter with God. This encounter changed his life forever and led him to the path of priesthood. In 2022, Paul Cowley made history as Iceland's first ever Director of Rehabilitation. His role is to recruit ex-offenders for jobs within the company. Paul has helped many individuals secure jobs at the frozen food retailers' stores with more opportunities on the horizon. Paul oversees the recruitment process rather than it being added to HR or the line manager responsibilities. The programme has received support from the company's founder and executive chairman, Malcolm Walker. Paul's journey from a troubled youth to a soldier and finally to a priest is testament to the transformative power of faith. He shares his story to give hope to anyone who feels lost and broken. Paul, thanks for coming in. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to meet you for the second time. Second time. Breakfast the first time, which was nice. Thief, prisoner, soldier, priest is the name of your, your book. An it's incredible it. book written you. by you and your wife, Amanda. Well, mostly my wife. I can't take any credit for Well, you give her a lot it. of credit in the book. I've just finished the book as I got here today. <laughs> Um, it's an incredible book that people need to read to understand who you, you are and how you've arrived at where you are today. What's not in the book is where I want to start, okay. which is the work that you do at the moment going into prisons, because that's how I became aware of you, going into prisons for the supermarket chain Iceland. Yeah. I might be describing this wrong, but my understanding is that you go in and you recruit people that are in prison who are due to be released to offer them, if I'm right, an opportunity to work for Iceland, giving them a second chance. Absolutely. That's it. Why? Why? Why do you do that? One, one because I suppose I've done that in some sort of guise for 27 years, um, working as a priest in the Church of England, setting up charities, helping men and women when they come out. And I have an empathy. You've read the book, so you know as a young man I was in trouble and I went to prison for a short time. Uh, and I know a little bit what it's like trying to come out and get that break. I got a break when I joined the army. Uh, fortunately, uh, an officer, well, I don't know if he took pity on me or not, but said, uh, I'm going to give you a break. I'm going to take a chance and you don't let me down. That was the 27th of January, 1976, in Manchester, a recruiting office. And it was that second chance that changed my life. So, so I think, I think they deserve, we all deserve a second chance to, to have a crack at it. Whether you can do it or not is, it's up to them. But I feel it's, it's my role to offer that. And that's been, um, that's been made available by Sir Malcolm Walker, the owner and founder of Iceland Foods who asked me last October, would I come and, and establish and set it up for, for, the, um, for the company? So I suppose that's why I do it. I mean, there's deeper meaning. Like, I, I feel it's a calling. And, and, and what's, what's come of that? What, what are you trying to do and how successful has it been? Um, what's come of that is um, Iceland now have a director of rehabilitation and they're, they're fully on board with that. They hired someone at a senior level, me. They've thrown resources at it and they're... They're, they're um, determined to sort of make it work for, for lots of reasons. Has it been successful, if that's the right word to use? I think I've interviewed 
over 200 men and women now since October, probably about 220, I can't remember. I've offered over 100 of those positions uh, in Iceland Foods around the UK as home delivery drivers or retail assistant or cleaners. And out of those, I've got 30 plus in store working today with about 15 to 20 waiting to go through the process of right to work documents. And the rest of them I've lost, just failed, um, drug tests, recalled, not turned up, can't be bothered, lots of reasons. So I lose, I'm saying I, I take it personally, I, I lose a lot of these men and women who just who just can't make it, they can't do it. But we don't give up on them, do we? Because they are the challenging ones that's why they are in the position that they're in that's why they end up maybe going to prison what do you look for when you go in to the prison and identify the individuals that you want to give an opportunity or that are looking for a second chance and the opportunity you're offering yeah well a lot of that's done through what's called the PEL which is the prison employment lead person which was set up by New Futures Network which is organized by the MOJ so that that person is the point of contact, he or she. And what I do, I, I give them, I send them the protocols of the person I'm, I'm looking for, uh, who I can take, who I can't take, who I'd like to take. Um, and then they do the sifting and find me 10, 12, 14 men or women uh, that fit those protocols that I've asked for. And then they line them up. And then I, I interview them like this, really, you know, for about 15 to 20 minutes each. They give me um, CVs and disclosures, which which are great. But to be honest, I'm not really interested in that. I want to know them. So I ask them all the, the basic questions. When you're getting out, where do you want to go? What this, that, that. And then I say, tell me your story. Tell me how you ended up here and why, what happened. And, and it's that, I don't know, through a gut feeling, through 27 years of working in the justice system, through being... A bit of a character myself, you've read the book. I, I get a feel if they're the right person and if they'll fit in the organization. I know the organization now quite well, 10, 11 months in. So I know what the stores are like. I know what the drivers have to do. I've done both jobs myself. So I'm kind of seeing if they'll fit into a team and not be an individual. They need to be a team member. Right. And, and I, I don't, obviously, with those numbers I gave you, get it right all the time. No, of course. And that's only... Natural. And, and what's interesting for me is, is the, the general public's perception or the narrative is, of, uh, is often, oh, that's too risky, that's dangerous. Yeah. You're, you're bringing people who have been to prison into an environment where it's normalized. I mean, what do you say to those people who often sort of say two things? One, oh, they shouldn't be given a chance. They were a, a, a convicted criminal and, and they are, are risky. They may steal the food that they're delivering or packing on a shelf or go off on a joyride in, in the van. And secondly, yeah. those who would argue that people should be given their first chance at being employed at Iceland rather than you finding ex-prisoners or people that have been in prison and giving them their second chance. Well, there's a few questions in there. If I mm. forget, remind me. Yeah. I think one of the things you asked me is they've committed a crime. So, um, you know, you said thief, prisoner, soldier, priest. So I'm a priest. So hopefully I'm into redemption and second chances. So they, they've, um, if they commit a crime, um, they need to go to prison. 
and they serve their sentence. There's a jury, there's a judicial system, and hopefully we believe in that sometimes. It's not always right, as no, you would know personally. Absolutely. Um, but hopefully we we get it right uh, as um, as a system. So they they get um, they get sentenced and they serve the sentence. And when they've done that, they've done that. That's their punishment. They they lose their um, their liberty. They lose their freedom. Anyone who's been in prison and says, "Oh, they've got duvets and coffee cups and TV machines," and it's a, you know, it's not. You lose your freedom. That's what you're losing, as you well know. You can't go to your father's funeral or your daughter's birthday. It's it's that when it kicks home, and that's your punishment. Uh, and when you've done that, you've done that. That's the end of it. And you should come out and you should be able to fit back into society and crack on if you want to and, and if you can. Because as we know, prison damages you immensely, emotionally and physically in, in lots of ways. So that's one reason. I think you've paid your debt to society. You should be allowed to come out and, and start again and, and have a crack at it. Let your second half of your life possibly better than your first. Um is it risky? Well, everything's a risk, isn't it? So, you know, I was asked this on um, on Times Radio um, a few weeks ago. One of the presenters said, isn't it a bit risky? Hang on a minute. You're getting an ex-offender to be a home delivery driver and he turns up or she turns up at the door and the single mum with the kids there takes a, and he comes in and that's a big risk, isn't it? I said, well, everything's a risk, isn't it? But the mere fact that we employ people and we don't know their background sometimes, or we do a CV and we all know we can cheat on that and make it look brilliant, their CVs mean nothing, to be honest. So there's an element of risk there. Some people might lie on a CV and you take a chance and you interview them and they might be good at that. What we're trying to do at Iceland Foods, or what I'm trying to do personally, is um, have this filter system where one, they're selected by the prison employment lead people. There's a set of protocols of, of what I don't want, what I can't take legally and, and uh, personally, what, what I don't want to take. So there's that filter. Then there's the filter that the PEL, the prison employment lead person, knows them on the wings and knows what they're like mm. better than I do. Mm. So there's a second filter. The third filter is they have to sit in front of me for 20 minutes and I, and I seriously grill them and, and I don't always take them. You know, so I, I feel the, as I said on Times Radio, I feel the element of risk is being narrowed all the time. But is there an element of risk? Absolutely. Yeah, there is. I, I can't say there isn't. There always will be with everything. I think it's brilliant what Iceland are doing. And I think anybody that is aware of it would also say the same, not just for Iceland, but any employer that is prepared to give people a second, third chance, you know, just like they would people who don't get in trouble exactly. with, with the law. I want to talk a little bit about your your journey to where you are now. And when I started reading your book and discovered a little bit about your childhood, mm. um, which set you off on a spiral of self-destruction, I don't know if that's the right term, share with me your journey, Paul, starting with what life was like for you growing up i suppose thinking about what you just said i suppose you can't you can't choose where you're born you can't choose your parents you can't choose the color of your skin you can't choose if your family is functional or dysfunctional you can't choose if they're alcoholics or or drug addicts you're born into that so i was born into a dysfunctional family and my father six foot four in his prime from toxteth in liverpool hard man uh, and my mother, five foot, um, Birkenhead, the Wirral, 
uh, again, hard woman, and, and they became my parents, both divorced, both various relationships, both alcoholics. And, and I was born into that. Um, we had children from various sort of uh, relationships and marriages that, you know, would be my half-siblings that I didn't really see or know about, to be honest, till later in life. And, and we were a tight unit. You know, they, they loved each other, but they were, um, they were dysfunctional. You know, my father was, was very violent, not, not to me, but to everyone else. I grew up seeing my father beat the living daylights out of anyone who didn't agree with him. He was like a, like a tinder pack. He just went off, um, and was very violent, uh, to anyone who didn't agree with him or his way of thinking. And my mum was the same, but she was, um, not physically violent, but verbally. I mean, she could cut you to pieces, you know, with, with her tongue. And I grew up in that, this small, blonde-haired, blue-eyed kid who, who wasn't like that, but I, I, they were parents. So we moved a lot. I realized, you know, I found out what bailiffs were quite early. I'd come home, there'd be a telly, then the next day there'd be no telly, then the fridge would be gone, and then it'd be back again. So I grew up in that environment. And I guess growing up as a kid, I saw and heard lots of things that kids shouldn't hear. You know, I grew up in a very adult world. It's funny, I, I've had some therapy, as you can imagine, over the years. And uh, I remember speaking to one therapist and, and I had this image of, um, as a kid, of women's knees, bear with me, women's knees and shirt and collars, ties, shirt, collar and ties. And when, when that was unpacked, that was the level of where I was as a kid with an adult world, if you know what I mean. Women sat on settees and chair. And I remember these women's knees uh, and, and these men in, in suits and shirts and ties. And, and that was, that was a, a big deal for me. I grew up in this sort of very, you know, my father had fallen out with everybody who he could possibly fall out with. He had a brother and three sisters, but he didn't speak to them because they didn't agree with him. My mother had five sisters. Um, she didn't speak to any of them. So I grew up in an environment that was just totally adult. You know, I, I definitely had cousins and aunties and uncles, but they were never around. So I grew up in this very adult world. And that, I know, had a massive effect on me. And at, and at 15, 16, a couple of things happened, which, which sent me off in this spiral that you mentioned. One, I was expelled from school. We moved schools or we moved areas. And I had to go to this comprehensive in Manchester and it was really rough uh, and I was bullied and, and I hated it. And I used to run away and in the end I got expelled for, for truancy. And at the same time that happened, uh, a weekend sort of cycle in our house was arguments, friends made up, you know, love and kisses and then more drink and then arguments. And it was a pattern, a cycle. And one Sunday my father came home late from work a uh, big argument. My mother had cooked for him. I was there. And my father went to backhand my mother in the front room. And I stood in the gap. And I, I got the belt that my, um, that my mother was going to get. And it was a big argument. And my father said, I want you out the house. So in my arrogance and youth, I ran upstairs, grabbed a bag, threw some stuff in and slammed the door behind me. And then got about 10 meters out of a place called Disbury in Manchester and realized I, I had nowhere to go because I didn't know where my uncles, aunties, nieces, nephews, I, and, and I was homeless for a while. And that, that just started 
stuff going on. When you, when you think about that now, when you reflect on it now as a, a you know father yourself uh, and a man who's had lots of experience, what what do you think when you reflect on it now? Because when you describe it, and I can see you go into the zone where you're thinking about and reflecting on it, and it's not the first time you've shared the story because it's all detailed in your book in yeah. much more detail. But when you reflect on it now, what does it make you think? In particular, when you think about you weren't the only one. You know, when you're a kid and you're growing up in that environment, you think you are. You think everybody's living a very happy life. But actually, probably every neighbour along your street was going through a similar experience yeah, yeah. Um, as they were in my neighbourhood down in London. You just um, don't know, do you? You, you don't just know. don't know until you grow up and you reflect and you see. So as you reflect on it now, what does it make you think? Well, it certainly made me... You know, I think I, I demonized, demonized my parents for years. I, I really did, spoke badly of them. And then maybe when I became a Christian and a priest, I had some different thoughts about it. And uh, I felt God say to me, you need to stop demonizing them. You know, they did the best they could. So I had to unpack all that through lots of different areas, some therapy. Uh, and, and I realized and I looked into my father's background and you know, my father, when he was five, his parents went to court because they didn't want him. Um, my father was a man of few words, uh, but they went to court because they didn't want him. So the equivalent to whatever social services were then uh, said, look, if you, don't, um, if you don't want your son, he'll go into care. So they didn't. And my father remembered his mother and father saying, no, we want him to go into care. And my father went into the care system at five and came out, I don't know, when he was 13, 14, and worked on a farm and was beaten and had a nightmare in the care system. So when I realized what he'd gone through and the various relationships, he was in the army, he was in the Irish Guards, I think, you know, I think he got discharged, dishonorably discharged. He'd been in prison, I didn't know that till I was, you know, nearly 20, I found that out. So, so when I realized that about him and, and my mother, you know, her father was a merchant navy, he was never there. Her mother had to bring up sister, daughters, five of them, you know. And so when I, and they lived in Birkenhead and, and they were poor. When I realized all that, I thought, you know what? It's a bit selfish to think it's all about me. You know, I had a moment and I thought they probably did the best they could. You know, my dad was a thief, actually, when I look back, but he tried. He was various things. He was a security officer. He worked for British Road Services. He was a private detective at one point. You know, he ran uh, a guard dog company. He had 17 guard dogs, all stationed. So we had another thing I realized, Raphael, we, we had five properties and two businesses. So we weren't poor. I thought we were poor at some point, but the alcohol and the dysfunctionality they lost all the money they have. They both, I buried both of them and they died with nothing, the, the pair of them. So they lost everything. So it's not that, it sounds a mixed story, you know, that, that I came from this rough background-ish, but they made money, so they did well. They had two corner shop businesses. They lost them basically because of my mother and her tongue, not doing very well with customers. Didn't want to shop in her <laughs> Didn't shop. Didn't want to shop in her <laughs> shop. So um, they left, so we left the premises. Uh, one, in, one in Stockport, one in, in Denton. So we had, and we had these properties and we had a bungalow and we had a, a house in, in Gorton. So when I realized they were just dysfunctional and couldn't get their act together, they loved each other, but it was a nightmare. So when I look back, I don't really demonize them anymore. I think they do the best. 
what has it taught me with my, my own daughter and my son? Hopefully to be a better father. There's nothing, absolutely nothing. My daughter, my, my son's in, in America living there now and, and, you know, 45 years, 46 years of age. My daughter, who's 25, there is nothing she could do that would make me ask her to leave our home. Mm. Nothing. Mm. She's my daughter. And I would never say get out of here. So it's those sort of things that are my memories, my emotions that hopefully have made me a, a better father. But you said it yourself that your stubbornness made you go upstairs, pack your bag and walk out of that door. And your dad, who probably didn't have the emotional intelligence no. to say, Paul, sit down. You know, he didn't mean it. He's not going to yeah. say to you he didn't mean it. Stop it now. Don't be so stupid. Don't sit be down. so stupid. No, yeah. it, didn't, it was didn't. never going to happen. No. But that led to you being on your own now. You're out there in this wild world. Yeah. At, at, in the 70s, was this? Yeah, 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 in, yeah, in, yeah. In the yeah, 70s? Yeah, mid-70s. How did that lead to you ending up going to prison? Well, when I left home, um, I said I, I ran out of Didsbury and then I thought I haven't got anywhere to go. So I went to somewhere I knew, which was Piccadilly, Manchester. Uh, I was familiar with Manchester very much so, born in Salford. And, uh, and I bummed around there. You know, for a while I, I, I slept in, in a shop sort of doorway. Uh, in Piccadilly, it's a bit different now, but then there, it was more shops and places, and and I and I stopped there and I bummed around, and I slept there for a while, and then I got picked up by by a gang. Really, it was a, a guy late at night who kicked my foot. You know what it's like to so so you're always a bit nervous on the streets. Kicked my foot and gave me a cup of tea. He was a bit older than me, not much older than me, and. And and we talked, what you do, and I told him what I was doing, and and he sat with me, and he said, "Look, we've got a, uh, I'm in a squat, in a place called um, Heaton Moor in Hooley Range, which is Stockport. Why don't you come and stay in there? It's better than the streets." And long story short, I, I moved in this derelict house in Hooley Range, which there was all sorts of going on happening in there young men and women and all sorts and there was bits of drugs in there it would have been cannabis and stuff i think N nothing really heavy to my knowledge and drink and that's where i got into thieving which was petty theft um what we do is we'd be organized i suppose looking back and go out and nick stuff from from shops and then warehouses and different things and then come back bring the stuff back in there whatever it was you know clothes from m&s or whatever in there uh, and then someone would come in and buy it and I'd, I'd be given a little bit of a share of that money. But I was pathetic at it. I constant, constantly got caught. It wasn't my natural habitat, but I tried it. I got away with some stuff, but I constantly got caught by the police, which led to um, then to probation, to fines, which I couldn't pay because I had no money, uh, and magistrate's appear appearances and and in the end, they just got fed up with me, I suppose. I went to a Manchester magistrate. I thought I'd get a slap on the hand and walk out again with another fine. And the magistrates this time, three of them on the bench, a guy in the middle, said, you, Cowley, are not listening to what we're trying to do. You, my son, are going to get a short, sharp shock. You're going to prison. And I remember thinking, no, I'm meant to be walking out of here and get a fine and get As a probation previously. with a cup of tea and a biscuit with a nice guy that would chat to me, you know, in Denton somewhere. And instead of going out, I went down those steps and into a cell and was taken to Risley, uh, which is in between um, Warrington, Manchester and Liverpool. It was then a, a Borstal detention centre. Short, sharp shock. 
mm. short, sharp shock. And, uh, and and it was for me, frightened the life out of me. Did Ab- it? Yeah, no, absolutely terrified. So you're this streetwise kid who comes from a physical family, I say that yeah. verbally yeah, and yeah, physically, yeah. you know, no doubt toughened you up, even though you, you, you describe yourself as not as tough as, as you became from what I read, but you go in prison for the first time and you're not shoulders back. No, I, I know, and I've reflected on that as well. My, my father, you know, if we we're talking about fighting, that sort of thing, my father could really handle himself when, when I look back. I mean, I don't know where he learned to fight, whatever, maybe on the farm as a kid, the care centre, the army, I don't know, but I've seen him hit someone and knock him straight out. You know, I saw him belt some guy off a bar stool in Spain because this... This guy kicked the dog, stray dog, and my dad loved mm. animals, better with animals than people. <laughs> uh, so I've seen him do a few things like that, hold someone up against the wall with his hand. Anyway, stuff like that. But he never taught me those skills. And, and I've often thought, why didn't you teach me to fight? Why, di- why didn't you teach me those skills? But he never did. So I, I was never, I was never a fighter, hence being bullied at school, running away. You know, one... You see it in the movies. I thought, one, I'll stand my ground. You know, I don't know if the guy's listening, but the guy was called Paul Watson. I still remember the name. <laughs> and uh, and I was bullied and bullied, and I thought, Do you know what? To heck with it. I'm going to, I'm standing my ground. So if you remember from school, it was all arranged in a field behind the school, <laughs> and all the crowd was there and everything. And I thought, this is my moment of glory. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll take him out, and people will leave me alone. He whacked me and knocked me out straight away. Straight away, bang. So that didn't work. <laughs> and shortly after that was why I, I left school. So I, I had no skills. I just didn't know how to fight. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I didn't know how to look after myself. So when I went into Risley, it was terrifying. Everyone seemed bigger than me. You far more experienced than me about prison. This is a young kid going into a detention center. I remember being a bit lippy at reception and one of the officers gave me a backhand across my ear and I thought, I didn't know, didn't know you could do that. <laughs> he just belted me. And then my clothes were taken off me, put into a box. I was given then like a bib and brace thing. And, and I was put into the system. And uh, it, was all, it was awful. Because uh, it's not just the physical, is it? The physical threat, the slap by the guards. It's the psychological and, and the discipline and everything else that comes. And short, sharp, sharp ball stalls were designed to scare the living daylights out of young men like you. I think think you're right. And and it doesn't always work, but it it did for me. You know, I I have sat here talking to you now. That was a long time ago. I still still have images of it. You know, and I remember my clothes going in a a box and P. Cowley being written on it and put up, and I I thought that's my bits of pieces going up there. (laughs) All my stuff was taken off me. And and it's that... Mm. It's that vulnerability that I don't know if you know what it's like until you know what it's like. Mm. And I'm not saying you have to have that experience to work in prisons. You don't. But it gives you an empathy. I think That's why you do what you do. You know, the stuff. Well, why would you do what you do? Mm. The mm. places you go into mm. and the situations mm. you put yourself in mm. are quite honestly stupid. Mm. But why do you do that? Because mm. you have an empathy. There's something in there that... Not that you feel safe because you put yourself in danger all the time, but but there's a reason. I would say that's a calling. That's a calling, and that's why I, I do what I do. But it's, you know, I still, I don't know about you, but I, I still 
like getting out of the prison even when I finished the interviews. And knowing that you can is a huge <laughs> difference. Massive. And you hear that door slam, you hear those keys, it's still here yeah, in my head. Yeah, yeah. but any time you can say, I, I want out. You, you yeah. were in Risley, it was a bad experience for you. You came out, how old was you at the time? Uh, 17, 18, 17, 18. What did you go on to do at that young age? Because uh, it could have gone one or two ways, couldn't it? You could have came out and developed some new skills as a criminal, yeah. which prisons can often yeah, yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. But that isn't what happened to you. No, I came out. I came out of there. F funny enough, my f no one came to see me while I was in there. My parents. My father came to meet me. How long was you in there for? Well, I got a, a year sentence, and I did just over six months because it was. And no one visited you in that time. No, because the magistrates could only give a year, if I remember rightly, the maximum sentences they could give. So I did it just over six months. No, no, nobody came. Because my parents, when I left home, it seemed when they all blew up. My father blamed my mother for, for me walking out. My mother blamed my father. They separated and went different ways and then married different people or lived with different people. So so our family home in Didsbury, where, where it all started, was was sold. Um, so they, they dispersed. But they never came to see me. But my father somehow, and I can't quite remember how, came to meet me when I got released um, from, from Risley. Uh, and it's, it's then I found out uh, a short conversation I had with him because he, he, he never spoke much. He turned up in his, as he always dressed, his ex sort of Irish guards. He had a blazer on the guards, Irish guards tie and a trilby. And he met me there and we walked out. And uh, I said, well, that's the last time I'll ever be in there. And he said, well, that's what I said. And that's the first time I thought, what do you mean? What do you mean? That's what you said. He didn't talk much about it, but he said he was in prison as a young man. So that's the time I, I realized that my father had been in prison. To answer your question, what happened? We, we parted company quite quickly. Uh, in fact, he got me a job, talking about jobs, with a mate of his, a guy called Dave Witherson. Funny how you remember these names, isn't it? Dave Witherson, who had a a second-hand furniture removal thing and I had a driving license and he let me drive a transit van which picked up bits of furniture and brought them back and repaired them and I was doing I was doing that and he got me that job and so I, I got some money uh, and I worked in a bar at night at the Didsbury Inn um, I ran the bar at the top so I worked every hour God sent and I got myself a bed sit in Didsbury single room and and I lived there and I lived this solitary life I was terrified of going back into Stockport in case I met anyone or got pulled into something again. So, so I, I lived on my own for, for a while and just worked and worked at night in the bar, made some money. Um, not proud of it, but I fiddled a little bit in, in the bar, made, made some extra cash. Mm. So I looked after myself uh, and I lived in this room and, and I didn't bother with anyone. And when I look back, I, I was terrified of, Risley really scared me the people in there uh, uh, and what I saw happening in there and different things. Uh, I was fine. Nobody bothered with me. But it scared me and I didn't want to go back. So I was terrified of um, of making a mistake and getting caught again and being put in there. So so I did that. And uh, as you know, you've read the book. One day when I was driving, I, I saw a big poster, marketing campaign advert for the army. And, and it said, you know, do you want a life of adventure? Then join join the British army. Whatever, my father, Irish guards, me, this poster was really attractive to soldiers skiing in camouflage uniform, life of adventure. 
I just found the recruiting office in um, in Fountain Street in Manchester. And I, what was impressive was the, the bit that I read that you didn't give up because criminal no, record, no. thief, prisoner, exactly trying to join the army. Um, I'm always under the impression that they would take the guys like that, you yeah, know. So because, was I. But they didn't, and you were quite determined, and you a distinguished career as a, as 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 an army officer and did some amazing stuff from what I read in in the book. And that's where it started. You saw a poster and you decided to go for it. Yeah, I, I, I went to the recruiting office. I was a very naive sort of potential soldier. I parked the van outside and I walked in and I said to the sergeant major, the stuff on the poster with the skiing and everything and all the kit, I quite like to do it. Where do I sign? <laughs> now, this was now I know what they were. This was a sergeant major, uh, you know, a senior um, ordinary rank. And uh, he said, uh, all right, well, let's have a chat. We had a chat. I told him I'd not long been released from, from Risley, told him my background, what had happened. He said, sorry, son, we can't take you with a with a criminal record like like that. I argued the point, but he said, I'm, I'm sorry. And I, was like, I said, is that it? He said, yeah, yeah, that's the end of it. And I got up, he shook my hand. And again, I mentioned in the book, it was weird. He, he shook my hand. He kind of held on to it for a few seconds and then looked at me and winked and said, but you never know, kid, if you keep trying. And when I went out, I thought, what's he mean, keep trying? I thought he said no. Anyway, for some reason, again, every week I went back, same conversation, same handshake, same wink. And in the end, I said, look, can you just tell me I can't get in and stop doing the winking and the handshaking stuff because it's making me keep coming. Anyway, we had this conversation. And that's when he said, come with me. And we went round the back and I was put in front of a, a senior officer, a major. And, and I didn't know they'd been watching me. You know, for nearly six months, four months, five months, whatever. That's how much you were going back. Yeah, yeah. They were really yeah, testing yeah, no, your... Yeah. I think so. I I just, you know, for me, I had nothing else. The job was all right, you know, but it was boring. You know, working in the bar was great. It was quite lucrative. You know, to be honest, I was meeting girls in there. I was making some money. It was, it was all right. But I was bored. And I kind of knew I was very shallow. Not that much depth to me now, but I was very shallow then. And I... But I knew there was something else, but I didn't know what it was. No idea. No one had inspired me. No one put any hope in me. It had all been knocked out of me, my background, my schooling, my parents. But I thought there must be something I can do. And, and that, I think that's why I kept going back. And in the end, I sat in front of this major, like we're sat in front now, and he said, we've been watching you for the past six months. You're a pretty determined kid, aren't you, to get in? I said, yeah, I am. If I want to be, I will be. And he just looked at me and uh, he stamped a bit of paper and signed it. And he said, I'm going to take a chance on you. Today, you're going to en enlisted into the army. And I've still got the bit of paper that says 27th of January, 1976, uh, Assertion Day. Uh, Paul Cowley accepted into Her Majesty's forces. And he said, don't let me down. And then I was escorted out. And that was it. Sutton Coalfield, three-day selection. Uh, I passed that. And then I went to Woolwich Arsenal. Um, for 28 weeks basic training for the Royal Artillery and that's where my career started but it was that one guy gave you a chance he could have signed it or not signed it yeah gave you a chance that, that was it and that that pivotal point completely changed my life not that I had a brilliant moral career do you think that was the second chance you needed or was it when you were released from prison or was it that one individual who took and gave you an opportunity no, it was him it was definitely him now, in retrospect, looking back, he must have seen something in me that I didn't see in myself. Mm. And 
I guess that's what I'm trying to do to answer your first question when I'm sat in front of these men and women. Mm. Can I see something in you that you can't see in yourself or it's been knocked out of you? You know, hope deferred makes the heart sick is Proverbs. And if you, if you lose hope, you're in serious trouble. You're in serious trouble if you don't have hope. Hope that it can change, you know. Uh, Abandon hope, oh ye who enter here. You know that phrase. Mm. So, so it's, it's, yeah, it's that, it's him, it's that man. I've never seen him since that day. Really? Ne- never, never ne- got the chance to go back and say no. thanks. Shallow, <laughs> shallow, never went back to say thanks. <laughs> but that sent you on a trajectory of various different things. I mean, when I started to read about your journey as a soldier, it was really impressive, actually, you know, to the point where you even attempted to become a member of the SAS. I did. Which sounded like the most challenging because up until that point, as I was reading your story, you you know, you succeeded at everything you went, especially the fitness side of stuff. You really succeeded. And the SAS training um, test was the ultimate. And I wouldn't say it broke you, but it was probably the first time in the book that you decided from what I was reading that it was something that you thought you wanted but didn't really want. Yeah, no, brilliant explanation of it. Um, yeah, I, I went for selection. I was recommended by my commanding officer. I trained hard. I sent myself down to Dartmoor on my own, and I walked the hills with some of the rangers there and, you know, got myself purposely lost and bushed up my mat. You know, I was I was prepped for it, and, and I was fit. You know, hopefully I'm not as fit now, but I'm fit. And I, w- I was prepped for it, and, and I got through most of it. But there was a point, which if you've read the book, I'm I'm in Brecon somewhere walking or the Elam Valley and I fall over mm-hmm. in some water with a pack on my back and I remember thinking I'm not getting up I'm not getting up I'm not what what the am I doing you know why so I, I had a moment and I walked to the checkpoint and uh, they were brilliant actually they don't give you second chances at Hereford well he did didn't he if well, I he, remember rightly well, he did you know he tried to say don't give up you're on our cards anyone who's listening who's done selection will know that you know you, you get to your checkpoint you get your map you can't use your finger or you get a belt around the head you use a piece of grass the point where you are and he said you know the zip comes down because it's it was pouring rain it was horrible zip comes down face comes up where are you what's your number mine was I don't know 36 blue or something pointed to where I was he said you're late I said, I know, I've, I've had, I've had enough. He goes, you're late. I didn't hear that. He said, you do, you're doing, you're doing well. Crack on, you can make up your time. I said, no, I've had enough, Saf. He said, last time I didn't hear that. You're doing well now. Off. I said, no, I, I've had enough. And he said, all right, get on the van. And there's always a Bedford waiting at the checkpoints. And I got on there and um, got back to camp. I can honestly say I got the the biggest rollicking of my life off the uh, off the training captain because I was doing well and I decided to leave so it's wasting resources wasting time and and I went back to my unit and and was very very sort of dissatisfied with everything when I got back because if you're a soldier I mean I don't know why any and every soldier doesn't try for Hereford because it's the ultimate it's you know, if you're an MP, you want to be prime minister, don't you? Mm. Why, why bother? Mm. So I wanted to be the the best I could possibly be. But, you know, the, the, there are different, there's a whole chapter I dedicate to it. And I, I'm in great admiration for, for our special forces, that they're a different type of character. And it's not about fitness. You know, I can honestly say I was fit enough to get through selection. 
I didn't have the mental ability and attitude to get through selection. It, it wasn't for me. They were a different type of soldier, different type of soldier altogether than, than, I, than I was, am. I'm interrupting this midpoint to let you know this podcast is also available for viewing on our YouTube channel at Second Chance Podcast. So if you want to enhance your listening experience with the visuals, check it out. I also wanted to ask for your support to help me grow the podcast. All you have to do is click on the subscribe and like button wherever you listen to the Second Chance podcast. If you can spare another few minutes to comment and rate the show, that'd be brilliant. By doing so, you'll be assisting us in bringing in more guests and creating more content for the show. It only takes a second, but it makes all the difference. Thank you. We've talked about you being a thief. We've talked about you becoming a prisoner we've talked about you being a soldier and the ultimate test of trying to be enlisted in the SAS and I know you know and I would urge people to read your book because it goes into a lot more detail um I'd love to talk about Amanda but you know yeah and and how that changed because you're a womanizer you you know you openly two marriages two divorces two marriages two divorces a a son who you abandoned i'm gonna go that hard and say you abandoned. no i did absolutely no i did Um, but that's been rekindled and your relationship is really strong um and your relationship uh a marriage to 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 amanda although the reason for getting married always made me smile i think it was to get a flat in the army or something yeah 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 Um, but the way you two met very romantic and then you became a priest and yeah. the journey to becoming a priest after you became a soldier was for me um the f- most frightening thing because it's the thing i fear more than anything <laughs> if i'm honest come on it the is. guy goes in the toughest prisons what are you doing fearful but that is kind of going inside yourself isn't yeah, it and, exactly. and that is you know the ultimate how did that come about for you you know, I, I grew up an atheist. You, you, you grew up what your parents are. My my parents were atheists. I don't think they were God haters. They were just not interested in it. So didn't do anything. I don't remember any religion at school. I never met a, a chaplain in the um, in Risley. You know, I never had a knock on the door. Are you all right, son? Do you want a cup of tea? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying they left me out purposely, but I never went to chapel. 17 years in the army, five regiments, Northern Ireland, Falklands. Never really had a conversation with a padre, uh, you know, a, a military chaplain. Not that I was looking for them, but they're supposed to look for me. That's their role. So so no link with anything till I was nearly 39, 40 years of age. And, and what happened, I suppose, is my, long story short, my mother got back in touch with me through, through the military. And uh, just before I left, left the army, I, I was a ski instructor. You know, I did adventure training. I specialized in that sort of stuff. And and I took a junior leaders regiment skiing. And at the same time all that happened, my mother got in touch with me. The army said, your mother's trying to find you. Can we give you an address? I said, yeah, whatever, if you want, you know, to. She won't come and see me. Anyway, again, long story short, she came to see me and Amanda. We weren't married then. We were living together in a place called Nuneaton in the Midlands. And she came to see us, and I didn't know why, and I was a bit nervous. My mum was a nightmare, and uh, and I never really got on with her, actually. Um, she loved me, but we didn't get on. And she came to stay with us in this house that I'd bought, two up, two down with Amanda, 
and 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 she moved in and it was a bit weird and she came down to see us and wanted to rekindle a relationship with me and I didn't know why and a bit nervous of all that and Amanda who's lovely you know went oh this is great you got your mum you know and I was always a bit yeah hang on a minute it's my mum she could turn at any point and then I got asked to take the, um, the junior leader ski team to uh, Austria, Germany, Switzerland for, for the junior leaders championships. And I took Amanda with me and I said to my mum, stay in the house. I'll be away a month or so. When I come back, we can chat. And I thought she'd be fed up by the area then and, and disappear. While I was away, um, I got a phone call, a compassionate call. Well, Amanda did actually from a friend. Uh, said your mum's collapsed, she's in hospital, she's quite ill, uh, we're going to monitor her. Then the army take over and said, look, we'll monitor her. If anything happens, we'll get you back, carry on skiing. Uh, and I did, and I got a second phone call, said, you need to get back. So um, we we got back. My mum was in a hospital, uh, George Elliott in, in Nuneaton. She collapsed, heavy smoker, had lung cancer. I had 10 days with, with my mum visiting, and as you do, you know, take the grapes, eat the grapes, take the juice, drink the juice, chat, stand there, awkward. And uh, then she went into a coma, uh, and then she died on me. Uh, and the point, just before she died, I was with Amanda, and I didn't know what to do. I was just looking at this woman who was my mother, and I said, I want to get into bed with her. Do you think that's a bit weird? And Amanda just said, you do what you want. So, you know, fully clothed, I got into bed with her and I, I just held, I held my mum and she had her head on my chest and, and it was just a really sad moment. You know, I was watching this monitor, the, the bleeping thing, and uh, it was going very slowly. And, and I remember saying, I'm sorry for being such an idiot, such a, a bad son, really, you know, and, and all the crap we'd been through. And anyway, I was talking and I was crying a bit and, and I watched this monitor and it, and it just flatlined. I said, it stopped. Amanda shouted the nurse, nurse came in. They pushed us to one side and my mum died. She died in my arms actually on my, on my chest. And that sent me into a bit of a, a flat spin without getting into much detail. I was very angry. They'd said that my mum might live for six months but she was very ill and then she died. So I was so angry with the doctors, young doctors. I was very rude and, and just emotionally sort of out there. We we came out of there, you know, I, I went back home. You have to kick into the burial and no money. Anyway, all that stuff. And some of her stuff was in the house and, and that was annoying me and upsetting me. I, I could smell her. Some of her clothes were there. And I just said, look, you know, everything in bin bags. Let's just get rid of all, all this. I'm not interested. Amanda said, should we have a look and keep? I said, no, everything in the bags. Let's just get it to Oxfam. And when I was doing that, I, I found some books. And one of the books I found was a Bible, a good news Bible, brown front cover. And I literally went, a Bible? And I opened it and, and pictures of me fell out as a kid which was a bit upsetting. And then I looked in it and it was all highlighted in different areas with bits of writing on the side and things, you know, anyway, I thought. And at the back, I, I opened it and, uh, and on the back page was, um, was a telephone number and it was a Manchester code and I remembered it. And again, for some reason, I don't know, I went downstairs, I got the phone and I dialed this number and someone answered and I said, who are you? How do you know my mother? And what are you doing in the back of this book? Bible thing. And she said, Oh, you must be Paul. 
I said, so rude. I said, yeah, who are you? What, what, what is this stuff? She said, oh, that book, the Bible, was given to your mother when she became a Christian and she was baptized in our church in Manchester. And uh, she told us all about you and that she was coming to see you. And I said, my mother's dead. And I, and I hung up. And, and it was that, that I thought, what's my mother? My mother, a Christian, I mean, she was a lunatic. Five foot, you know, verbally violent, just aggressive from, from sort of Birkenhead. And she wasn't this idea I had of a Christian, which were the sandals, the socks, the curly hair, <laughs> you know, in, we all think that's, yep, yep, you know, yep, the ADD yep, with the guitar. Yep. And I thought, my mother, a Christian, baptized, church, fellowship groups, and anyway, for a, a few days, I was in a real spin. We, we buried my mother. I buried her. There was only four of us turned up at the surface. It was really sad and depressing. And then I couldn't get this thing of my mother being a Christian. And why didn't she talk about it when she was dying? You know, why before the coma, why didn't she say, oh, Paul, I've become a Christian. Do you love the Lord? Oh, nothing. Why didn't she give me a Bible, a book, anything? Nothing. Zilch. So I was fascinated. So I thought, you know what? Determination again. I'm going to find out what happened to my mother. And, and I went to churches. I just walked in. I'd left the army then. I'd walked in. I stropped in. I went in big churches, small churches around London, all over the place. Not interested what denomination they were. Big church, small church, Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, not interested. And I just walked in and I stood at the back. Some were great. Some were cold. Some were over full. Some were empty. And I sat through it and I just, I couldn't get it. I couldn't get what she'd got. Why was she in there? And eventually, um, Amanda's brother actually said, I know he's a Christian. He was a pastor. Said, I know Paul's on this mission for some reason. They won't listen to anybody. <laughs> but why, why don't you tell me about this church in, in, um, in Knightsbridge called Holy Trinity Brompton? Uh, and Amanda was uh, an art director for Mentorn Films uh, at the time in, in Soho. So I was staying with her in, in uh, just off Oxford Street. So I said, come on, let's try this church then, Holy Trinity Brompton thing, whatever it is. And we went in and it was nice. It was a big church. Music was kind of cool. It was all right. People looked all right. It looked a bit posh to me. And on the way out, um, there was a young girl on the door. And, um, you know, she smiled and said, I hope you enjoyed the service. Would you like to take one of these? And she gave me a leaflet. And I took it and put it in my pocket, went for coffee, opened the leaflet, and it was um, about an alpha course. And the alpha course is an introduction to the Christian faith, alpha, alpha and omega, the Greek beginning, end. Okay. It's the beginning of a Christian course. So I just thought, do you know what? I've done courses on everything. You've read the book, you know, from being a sniper to doing this, to a tank driver, to this, to that. I thought I'll do a course on God and see what happened to my mother. So we both went on this alpha course and it was nice. It was once a week. It was a Wednesday night. It was free. There was good food. It was a little talk and then it was a discussion group. And uh, and I sat through it and I was kind of interested. It was all new to me, the whole stuff. I, I knew nothing about the Christian faith. I thought I did. I had preconceived ideas, but I didn't know anything. And I sat through it and again, long story short, halfway through, the course, they have a weekend away where they talk about the Holy Spirit. When you say before, you know, about being inside you, that God lives in us and, and you get in touch with yourself. And on, on that weekend, I guess all I can say is I had, I had a moment. I remember listening to the speaker uh, talking about unconditional love. 
and that God loves us unconditionally. And I remember thinking, that means like you can do anything. He's like, whatever you've done, your past, he still loves you. Mm. And then he quoted some scriptures that, you know, God, God throws our sins, our trespasses in the sea of forgetfulness and remembers them no more. I thought, wow. And I remember standing there and then again, I just, I had this moment where I had a picture and in the army from being bullied, when I joined the army, I learned how to box a bit. So I was never bullied again, let's put it, put it that way. Mm-hmm. I wanted to look after myself. Uh, and I wasn't a very good boxer, but I could, I could scrap a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had this picture while I was there in my head of a boxing ring, which for me was very familiar. And then the seconds in our, the corner, they were there. There was two fighters. There was me looking at the other fighter. And then I remember th- this towel coming in. You know, they don't do it so much now, but you throw the towel in, which means the opponent is too strong for you. So your seconds go, you're going to get hurt here. We throw the towel in, the fight stopped, did the opponent's one. And I felt God say, why don't you just let me throw the towel in and stop fighting and let me help you? I can look after you. You know, you've been on your own since you were 15 and a half, 16. You don't have to do that. I want to help you and support you. And uh, and I and I found myself just weeping. And then a couple of men came up behind me, put their hand on my shoulders and, and prayed for me. And it was there then. I said, you know, if, if all this stuff is true, what I've heard for the past sort of eight weeks or whatever, that you love me unconditionally, that you can change my life, that you have a, a good and pleasing plan for me, that, you know, you threw everything away and we can start afresh, then do you know what? I'll have some of that. And I remember going, am I looking at the ceiling or am I looking at God? Mm-hmm. I'll have some of that if, if you think I'm up for it. And the two lads either side of me said, um, let's say amen. So I said, amen. And that was the start of my Christian journey in Chichester on the coast down there somewhere in this sort of Pontins holiday camp that we'd hide for a weekend. And that was the start of it. And all I can say is stuff started to change. Just, you just, you know, my, my mind started to mm. change. I looked mm. at things differently. You know, I, uh, I just started to think about things. I started thinking about my son who I hadn't been in contact with. And you said, we're together now. Mm. We weren't because I wasn't bothered. And actually I was scared, fearful facing that i abandoned him and why would he want me back and uh, and i felt god say come on we'll have a crack on this together marriage two divorces two marriages two divorces living with a girl eight years amanda she was amazing god said what about marriage i said come on i don't i don't do marriage yeah you're different now and so my whole brain pattern i don't know how to explain it you know, I did three years theology and I still can't explain it. It just started to, I just started to think differently and not be so fearful, I suppose, about stuff. Mm. So interesting. <laughs> so interesting. Just one final question, although our time's up. What is the moral of your story? We started with thief, prisoner, soldier, priest, and each of those are broken down in your book. And again, I would urge people to to read it because you've only touched on some of your experiences under each of those headings. But just 10 seconds, what's the moral of your story, Paul? You know, I, I interviewed a guy in Leeds prison the other day and he's just come into my head and it was quite extraordinary. I looked at him at first and I thought, I don't think I want you. 
straight away. I thought, you're not going to fit. And then he unpacked his story. And one of the things he said to me was, you know, I'm just really tired. I don't want, I don't want the second half of my life to be like the first. And it really struck me. Anyway, I offered him a job. And it really struck me that, that if that's a moral, I don't want the second half of these men's lives to be like the first half. Because we make mistakes, but it's not always our fault why we get into situations. You know, there's no excuses for crime, but there's reasons behind it, why we get into it. So I, I suppose I'm driven to to do that. And, and the more would be, I want to help them. I want them to have a second better half than the first half, uh, which is possible. And it happened in your own life. And it happened in my own life. It's possible, it's not easy. It's almost impossible at times, but it is possible. Paul, thank you so much thank for sharing. Thanks much. for coming in. Brilliant. Enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in to the Second Chance podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. Quick reminder that you can find the video of this interview on our YouTube channel at Second Chance Podcast, where you can also subscribe to be notified of new episodes. Please share our episodes with your friends, family and colleagues and follow us on YouTube and your preferred podcast platform for updates on new episodes. Your feedback is crucial to the growth of our podcast. Please rate and review our episodes and let us know your thoughts in the comments section. This podcast was brought to you by Second Chance Media Productions. Audio Avalanche handles audio editing. J-Row Productions created the original soundtrack. Studio Minerva designed the eye-catching cover. Social media marketing agency Scribble manages and creates our social media content. If you haven't already, please follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook and LinkedIn. Just look for Second Chance Podcast with me, Raphael Rowe. Thanks for tuning in. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.